Um, so I thought I would talk a little bit about my weekend um, uh, and kind of uh, bring you into a conversation that was ongoing this weekend. And it was the Spirit Rock teachers met with Sokni Rinpoche. And how many people here have practiced with Sokni Rinpoche? Okay, a few people. So Sokni is a wonderful Tibetan teacher. He's a tulku, meaning he's a reincarnate lama, um, so they say, right, in the Tibetan tradition. And he's the third Sokni Rinpoche. And he's... Um, uh, his father was a very famous and esteemed teacher uh, named um, uh, Ergen Tolku. So his father was a, uh, a reincarnate Lama, but of a different order, the, the Ergen Tolkus. And uh, Tolku means reincarnate Lama, basically. And, um, and his family, he has four other brothers, I believe, and they're all teachers also. Um, and quite, quite highly respected. So he comes from a very um, um, respected and can, important family of teachers in the Tibetan tradition. And he's been teaching um, at Spirit Rock for many years and teaching um, Vipassana students for many years. I'm not sure how that came about exactly, but I know he really, really loved teaching Vipassana students because they knew how to meditate. And he, and they also, the form that we use, the silent meditation form, is uh, different than the form that he'd been teaching in, in the Tibetan tradition, which is less disciplined, we could say, or less organized, maybe a better way to say it. Um, and so he started coming to the West, teaching people in our tradition, and it's been a great match, really good match. And we've learned a lot from Sokni Rinpoche, and as Sokni would say, he's learned a lot from us. And so um, he was giving a retreat at Spirit Rock and there was some time after and we asked for time with him and we got to spend two, two and a half days with him. And I just thought I would tell you a little bit about some of the things we talked about and um, see what you think. Um, one of the things we talked about as teachers was um, working, what does he see are the problems of Western students as opposed to Eastern students or Tibetan students. And one of the areas we talked about was the area of woundedness, of woundedness, of um, um, people come to practice. And one of the first levels of practice, and this isn't true for everyone, or, you know, it's not, I don't mean to be stereotypical, but one of the levels of practice will be the undigested or unmetabolized pains of a lifetime. Um, and it might be from childhood, or it might be just from the, the unmetabolized pains of being a human being and growing up and whatever may have happened to you. Sometimes it's, you know, just the normal neurotic difficulties, 
but a little more we were talking about the level of trauma. And it was interesting to hear him talk about it and how he talked about it from the Tibetan tradition and understanding. And he talked about it in terms of that the subtle body is is traumatized. What he called the subtle body is traumatized, which of course includes the, the heart or the inner heart. Um, and he talked about um, something that happened to him. He said he was on an uh, airplane a number of years ago in, in Nepal and the airplane almost crashed. And he talked about how frightening it was, the experience, and how for the many years he would get on a plane and he would know mentally, he said, I know my mind would say, oh no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, but in his body, and, and Sokni is very physical in his experience. So he's scared, fear, fear. And he'd say, oh, my mind would say, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, the plane's fine. He said the mind wouldn't touch the trauma or the, the um, uh, uh, trauma of the subtle, what he called the subtle body. And, um, and and that um, he said, you know, he said I could tell myself, oh, it's all fine. I could get really clear. I get on the plane, mm, fear, fear. And so how do he said it took him a number of years to metabolize that experience, and that and that it, and that what he sees is actually that a lot of Westerners come with those kind of experiences that are unmetabolized in some way. Um, and then we talked about, well, how do you help people with that? Because we, we have our own understanding and we talk about this a lot and how to work with un, undigested emotional conflicts or um, um, early abuse or whether it be physical or sexual or, or, or just... Um, uh, some, you know, dysfunctional childhood family, which, you know, is kind of almost the, the norm in some sense. Um, and he, and so he, again, he talked about it from more of a Buddhist perspective rather than a psychological perspective. And of course, we trade off with him. We, we explain a lot the psychological perspective because it's one of the skillful means we have here in the West that the Buddha didn't have in the same way and isn't rooted in the tradition in the same way. Um, but one of the things he said was really important was samadhi practice, was the practice of, of uh, shamatha or samadhi, um, which is learning how to create a sense of well-being through the meditation practice itself. It's concentration practice. And it's it's learning how to gather ourselves with body and breath and mind in order to relax the subtle body, to let the subtle body stop being so tight or nervous or unrelaxed. And so, so just the simple practice we start with here, where we mostly start with body and breathing, is, is a very important practice to start to um, learn how to care for ourselves, how to stay present when there is difficulty, when there is agitation, when there is reaction, when there is 
uh, um, a sense of restlessness or dis-ease and then to learn how to establish ourselves in something that's more calm, more peaceful, more centered, more quiet, more relaxed. And then the next level of the meditative process can begin to unfold from there. He also talked about the heart and the heart being contracted a lot for people. And remember, even with the tragedy of what's happened in Tibet, um, really the kind of uh, uh, annihilation of the culture in Tibet itself, that the Tibetan people in general, again, have a very cohesive sense of community there's a very cohesive sense of belonging and of feeling um, uh, held in some way that often for many people, not everybody, but for many people in America, we don't have. Or, or for many of us who've left family or left, like, you know, how many people here were born and raised in San Francisco? I want to see. Okay, that's actually a pretty fair amount of the group, you know. But it's, it's a very small amount if I would go to Detroit and ask that question, actually you'd see a lot more people, it'd be, it'd be more the opposite. We, we live in a culture of people who've come from somewhere else generally. And so often there's not this sense of community or we're parts of certain communities but they're small or, or they're not as, we don't feel a sense of belonging often that allows us, that allows the heart to relax even with the difficulties of life. And so he talked a lot about the, um, what allows the heart to really relax, to be soft, to be rich and full and um, juicy. And, um, and so he was questioning us about devotional practice. How do we teach devotional practices to people in the West? And we had an interesting discussion about, first of all, why we don't, why we haven't taught devotional practice so much in the West, and how when the first teachers came back, let's say in the 60s, this is in the insight meditation community specifically, um, it's not in the more um, uh, um, traditional cultures that have come and brought Buddhism, let's say in the Vietnamese culture or in the Japanese culture when they, as the immigrant cultures came and, and established you know they, they were already Buddhist they, were, they brought their Buddhism and that Buddhism has a lot of devotional practice to it but for the uh, people who came to Buddhism from other religions there was a lot of skepticism around devotional practices because a lot of people had problems with their religion of origin. So whether they were Christian or Muslim or Jewish or, or you know, Catholic or whatever various denominations, a lot of people uh, uh, in the 60s, especially when insight meditation was being planted, um, they weren't interested in religion. People wanted enlightenment, they didn't want religion. People wanted freedom, but they didn't want religion. 
Buddhism was good if it offered practices, if it offered a way, but people didn't want to switch from being devoted to a religion that they felt disconnected to and now having to be devoted to this other religion. And so the teachers didn't teach devotional practice, basically. Teachers taught meditation. They taught the, the, the heart practices of loving kindness and compassion. But they, the devotional practices were downplayed. And so you'll notice even to this day, like we don't come in and do three bows to the Buddha, all of us. How, how would that be for you all? If coming in, we all did three, you know, on the floor prostrations. Everybody ready for that? It's, it's, not our, it's not the way we've been uh, uh, acculturated in the insight meditation community. But if you go to Asia, if you go to any monastery, there's a lot of bowing. A lot of bowing. And, and to be honest, if once you start doing it, it's great. It's really great to bow. Um, or we don't do a lot of chanting. I mean, we don't do any chanting here, <laughs> basically. Wednesday night, Pamela does chants the refuges. And, um, but, you know, in all the Buddhist monasteries in Asia, there is a lot of chanting, all kinds of chanting. You, could, you don't even have to have a reason to chant when you chant. And, and so these more, de or, or, um, or, or asking for blessings, right? We don't do that so much. I don't, I don't get so many people coming asking me to give blessings, right? And that, we don't have any holy water here. Although when I was in my teacher training, one of the things, one of the things that I learned was how to make holy water, which is kind of cool, you know. <laughs> I said, I said when Jack, I was with Jack Cornfield. I said, Jack, I don't believe in holy water. He said, Don't worry, you will. You know? <laughs> And slowly, I've, I'm getting there. Of course, my favorite story of holy water is Ajahn Jumnian, who's actually at Spirit Rock today. And he's, he's um, when Jack Cornfield, and this, is, this will tie into Sokni Rupeshe in a minute. Um, Ajahn Jumnian, when Jack Cornfield wrote his first book called Living Buddhist Masters, I think Ajahn Jumnian was about 35. And he was one of the living Buddhist masters. And I think he's only one of two or three who are still alive out of 12 masters that Jack Cornfield wrote about. And he's 72 now, uh, Ajahn Jumnian. And Ajahn Jumnian often, when he does, gives blessing with holy water, he does it with a squirt gun. <laughs> Ajahn Jumnian, if you've never been around Ajahn Jumnian, he's somebody to check out also. He, he can be a lot of fun. Anyhow, and the way this is going to tie in is Ajahn Jumnian came with Sokni Rinpoche yesterday for a morning. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. So, um, the other piece about the devotion is supplication. Supplicating to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Uh, asking for their blessings. And Sokni said, yeah, Westerners, that's not so easy for Westerners. They don't, they don't do that. 
And, and, and we were saying, well, how do you understand that, you know, Rinpoche? And he said a very interesting thing. He said, you know, if you look at Tibetans, and the, my Tibetan students and my Western students, he said the Western students actually have realization much quicker than the Tibetan students, which really surprised me and I think all of us. He said, the Westerners have a very highly developed mind. That their minds are very, they're very intelligent Westerners. And so when he gives the highest Tibetan teachings, people get it very quickly. He said, but they don't stabilize in it. They get it and then they go home and then they think, oh, did I really get that? Well, I don't know, but I have this to do and that to do. And Oh yeah, let me think about this and I'm going to read the New York Times now and I want to... He said, and so after, very quickly they, they lose it. He said, for the Tibetan culture, he said that it's not as intellectual a culture. He said, he said that it hasn't been developed in the same way the Western mind has developed. He said, so it takes longer for them to get the higher teachings, which is really about the nature of mind. He said, but when they get it, they don't lose it. Or they stabilize much sooner. And, and I thought that was very interesting to hear. And he said, and of course, because of their cultural uh, uh, history and lineage, they also can draw upon certain practices that Westerners can't draw upon, like getting the blessings of Avalokiteshvara who is one of the bodhisattva of compassion and, and um, you know, and for, and Silky and, and, um, was trying to, he said this a few times, he said, now they're not gods, they're not gods, the bodhisattvas, or the deities, this is deity practice. He said they're not gods, but they are energies, and you can tap into that energy. And it's not just that, it's not just, uh, and, and this is where he was arguing with our Western way of trying to make sense of this. He said, no, it's not just an emanation of your mind. No, it's actually out there. This energy is of the energy of compassion and the, and the, and the, uh, and the energy of Avalokiteshvara is actually out there and can bless you and can have an impact on you. And you know, it's very interesting. It's not the way we think. It's not the way we're drawn. And sometimes we might have an intuition of that or a feeling of that. Now, and personally, I mean, that's not the way I practice or not how I'm drawn, you know, generally. Although I'm absolutely more open to all of that than I've ever been in my life or practice. And partly it's because of my friends and our friends, Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, who have come and taught here and will be coming more, and who were, um, um, uh, he was a, a monk and she was a nun, and you know, they jumped the fence and now they're married and all that stuff. But, um, but um, they, um, they do devotional practices, and I've done these kind of devotional practices with them. And they're mystical practices. And I've seen the power of the practice. And, um, and, and it's been a great experience to um, practice in a form that I normally wouldn't and then see what happens. See the power of that kind of practice.
So there was there were a lot of different pieces. We we talked about um, how senior students. How can we support the most senior students in our tradition? We talked about how people plateau uh, in practice at a certain point. He he had some interesting insights about us as Westerners. He says Westerners a lot of people will learn enough practice so that they can really, they, a certain kind of freedom comes and a certain kind of well-being comes and they plateau there. That's where they plateau. That's where we plateau. And he had a really nice name for it. He called it high-class samsara. <laughs> samsara is, the word samsara is like the world of suffering. And so he said, well, people learn how to how to re- relax and center and let go and sense of ease and peace and and then and then if they practice, one of the things that often happens is their 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 life starts to line up, things start to you know and it's not that it's perfect, but it's you know people have like relatively good lives. And, and also, as there's more freedom, they start to appreciate the life that we have. And so it becomes quite fulfilling. doesn't mean life's perfect, but we appreciate that we have whatever it is we have, home and friends and work or whatever it is. And then he said, that's, that's the place to watch out for. High-class samsara. You know, it's not it's not the horrible dukkha of your life's a mess and you're on drugs or your relationships just broken up or your you know everything's falling apart. It's the it's the samsara of oh things are actually not not just that things are so good, where your development, your mind, your heart has become free to a certain extent, so that you can enjoy life. And you can appreciate it. And he said, that's where people get stuck. That's where people plateau. And to, and so, and then he was pushing us a little, spirit route teachers. He said, then you have to talk more about impermanence. He said, people have a basic understanding of impermanence, but it's not the sense of urgency. They've lost the sense of urgency in practice. And this, the term is samvega in the Pali. It's spiritual urgency. It's seeing, actually, we may not live another day. That we don't know when we're going to die. That we're still, there's a way that it gets comfortable enough. We think, oh, it's just fine and everything's going. And there's a really unconscious belief like we're going to live forever. Or everything's going to be fine forever. And actually, we have no idea what the hell is going to happen. For, for ourselves and for the world. Could, it could all turn in a dime. Something could happen tomorrow. And we don't know. And, and, and that kind of really tapping into that not knowing will help us to, to really let the Dharma, cent, really help us center our lives in the Dharma and really go for liberation. And that was what he was pointing to really look for where is freedom, where is liberation, and not to stop at any plateau. And of course, he doesn't mean to get tight or tense. That's not what the urgency is about. It's about really looking 
at the more and more subtle forms of dukkha, of suffering, of high-class samsara. And one other piece that we talked about is we were talking about the the way in the Tibetan tradition the I is used, right? Like I, me, Eugene, and that sense of I. And he gave five different ways to think about that the I is understood. And and it's I think this is helpful because sometimes when people hear the teachings of selflessness or egolessness or anatta, um, the, the teaching that there's a, a no self or not self, um, then they think that there can't be any I. And so this may, this may help give you a context. And the, f- the first level of I, he called mere I, M-E-R-E, mere I or simple I. And he said, this is the relative understanding of I, and this is really an important and relevant way to think about I. It's just I. I mean, if, he said, if you have a body, there's an I, and that I is the mere I, or, or relative I, or simple sense of I, without any embellishment, and without any reification. It's just a sense of I that we can use to orient to orient ourselves and to, and, and it's an important sense of I to have. If you lose that sense of I totally, it, generally it's a kind of psychosis without some reference of just, okay, I'm here, I'm sitting here, I'm in the room, I'm going home to my house. It's just a normal conventional use of the word I. He said the problem is, is that I starts to get fixated and then you have the second level, which he, he talked about as ego fixation. And this is now a stronger feeling of ownership and of, and of a, he said, a boss. And that there's somebody here directing everything, controlling everything, owning everything. And it feels real, he said, that I'm here, there's an I. It's not just an I that's helping in terms of orientation the eye starts to get fixated or becomes concrete. And that instead of seeing the eye as a relative skillful means, we start to see it as something real. Instead of seeing that their eye itself is totally illusory. It's just a helpful way to talk about things, I. He says we start to see we start to from this ego fixation the eye becomes more permanent. It's not impermanent. It's not transparent. It's much more solid. And it's more gross. So first there's the mere eye or simple eye. Then there's more the sense of ego fixation, which is more gross, more solid. And then the third level, which he called. First he called it um, self-cherishing, the self-cherishing eye. And we, we debated with him a little about that. We said, that's not a good way to talk about it for Westerners. First of all, because to cherish something has a positive um, uh, um, implication for us as Westerners. 
And so we, we got him to switch his language a little bit to self-centered cherishing. Self-centered cherishing, which is more what he was pointing at. Actually, one of the things for many of the Tibetan teachers is they have a hard time, it takes them a while to understand that actually we don't cherish ourselves. That, that, that really takes them a while to get. For the Dalai Lama, there was a big conference in Dharamsala about 15 years ago and people were trying to exp explain the sense of, um, of um, lack of self-worth that Westerners have and they had to explain it for a while before he got it and then he said, well, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, when he really, he said, that's wrong, they shouldn't do that. You know, so that's, I'm giving you the Dalai Lama's teaching. If you're doing any of that, stop it. <laughs> but, and so, but what he was, what, what Sokhi was pointing to when he said, now we're, we're using the term self-centered cherishing, it's always thinking about ourselves first. It's always thinking about ourselves first. Always wanting the best for me. Or, or, or always putting self above others. And even this, this is a very tricky place for us. Uh, you know, when my daughter was um, about nine, we had a Tibetan monk staying at our house. And I came home one day, and she was sitting on the stoop with this Tibetan monk, and they were having a debate. And the debate was this. He was telling her, if you do first for others, then that's, a, that's the best way to take care of yourself. If you take care of others, that's the best way to take care of yourself. And she was saying, no, if you take care of yourself, that's the best way to take care. Then you'll take care of others. And, it's in, and, and there is, and I think, it was, I think it's a worthy debate because I don't think it's just one way or the other. I think there are times when it actually is important to learn how to think about ourselves, care for ourselves, um, see what we need. I think that's a, an important step at times for people. Um, if you don't have it, it's worth, worth learning. But it's not the end step. It's a, it's a step in a progress of maturation. And so the, the, the learning how to care for ourselves is most skillful if it's in the movement of maturation so that we learn how to care for others also. And of course, some of the most powerful healing for people is learning how to care for others, to give for others, to serve others. And I think the 12-step uh, teachings are really skillful that way in that people, part of their teaching is about service. If you want to learn how to be free, serve, serve others. And of course, for those of you who know Ramdas, Ram, when Ramdas was leaving his guru in India in 1965 or something, and said, "Well, what should I do?" His, his, you know, his teacher said, "Serve others." And so, and it begins to undercut that self-centeredness that is often at the root of suffering and feeling isolated and feeling separate. And then the fourth level of I that Sokni Rinpoche talked about is what he called the social I. The social I. 
and this is the eye that is we find in relationship and in relatedness and in community and in the world and a lot of this was about the different roles we find ourselves in and identifying with those roles with the different uh, ways that we um, define ourselves and then actually believing that definition like teacher right teacher is a role and if you identify with the, the role it's uh, you know if that I starts to become more solid it's suffering or father or man or whatever it might be whatever ways we define ourselves it's not bad to define ourselves or to have roles Sokni was very clear about that he said no no roles are fine it's good inhabit your role um, uh, uh, fulfill your role uh, be a, if you're a parent then be a, be a good parent if you're a teacher be a good teacher if you're a student be a good student whatever roles we find ourselves in you know, if we're, whatever it is, if we're a gardener, you know, be a good gardener. Uh, uh, give yourself to the roles, but don't identify with the role. Don't, don't let that define you in an ultimate way. It's a relative part of reality, and it's important to respect, and he said this over and over again, it's important to respect the relative I. It's very important to respect the relative I and to live the relative I without being totally identified with that relative level of reality. And then the last piece I'll say is just it was, it was a lot of fun to have Ajahn Jumnian come. So Ajahn Jumnian is this great Thai forest master Ajahn, and then Sokni Rinpoche, this you know Tibetan reincarnate Lama, um, and we kind of put them up there together with their two translators, and you know had some dueling Dharma teaching, <laughs> and and they spent the morning a lot talking about the fine points of emptiness and teaching emptiness, and 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 Sokni who's has a brilliant mind, clearly. The, uh, he just started pe- peppering questions. He just wanted to learn. You know, he, just, he said, oh no, I don't have anything to say. I want, and you know, of course, Sokni's very young. He's, he's not as young as he used to be, but I think he's just around 40 or so, and relatively young for such a, um, a really great teacher. Um, and so he just wanted to hear from uh, uh, Ajahn Jimnian. And I'll just tell you a little bit of what Ajahn Jimnian said because I think it's very helpful. Ajahn Jimnian said when he teaches emptiness, the first thing he teaches people is about uh, letting go of liking and disliking. Letting go of liking and disliking to start to be mindful of what we like and what we don't like and then to start to let go of the attachment to what we like and the attachment to what we don't like and of course the attachment looks like grasping for what we like and pushing away what we don't like and he said that's the basis once somebody gets that then he can start to teach them about emptiness because they see they're not bound by their preferences. 
and then they can start to see reality as as a uh, um, uh, a series of experiences that are simply coming and going, simply coming and going, and that they don't have any substance in terms of being fixed or solid or permanent. But he said until people get a sense of this is called Vedana in in the teachings of Vedana in in Theravada Buddhism, and it's really the feeling tone. It's, it's said that in each moment that there's a feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the, and the importance of this is in a number of different Buddhist teachings is that we grasp for what's pleasant and push away what's unpleasant. And that grasping and that pushing away is suffering. Either way. And it's it really takes a while. It's one of the beauties of doing a little bit longer retreat, a meditation retreat, and sitting. And at a certain point, something that was bothering you, all of a sudden, it's still not comfortable. It's still not pleasant. Maybe you have a pain in your knee. But all of a sudden, you're not pushing it away. And it's like, oh, that's a different relationship with reality. Or there's something really pleasant, but you're not grasping for it. It's there, and you can enjoy it. But you're not trying to hold on. And all of a sudden, there's a different place, there's a different center for us to be here. I'll say one more thing about this because then, of course, Ajahn Jumnian wanted to know how Sokni Rinpoche taught uh, emptiness. And one of the things that Sokni said he thought was helpful, especially when people have a sense of emptiness but they're not stabilized in it, he said, start to see everything, the world, as an illusion. This is very classically Buddhist. Right? Everything's an illusion. Everything's, it's not just that it's impermanent, it's empty and it's dreamlike. And just as you know how in a dream we really, in the dream we really think it's real and then we wake up and it's like, oh, it was just a dream. Well, in some sense, that's how life is understood. We're taking it all to be so real and then at a certain point we might wake up and see, oh, it's not quite the way we thought it was. And we have, we have intuitions of this at times. We have inklings of it. One of the places people have the biggest understanding is when somebody dies. That that's a very powerful, or sometimes when somebody's born, but a little more often when people die. People, all of a sudden, the whole sense of solidity really cracks. It doesn't, it doesn't hold anymore. And all of a sudden we see the, the empty or dreamlike or illusory quality of reality. And it doesn't mean it's not here. And it doesn't mean we don't respect it. And we don't, and I mean really respect the relative. But we don't believe it in the same way we used to believe it at some point. And so one of the practices you could do, and I was doing it here tonight during the break, I was sitting here and people were socializing and talking and hanging out or sitting and, and I was just looking at it through the dreamlike lens 
oh, you're all just part of my dream here tonight. And it's a pretty good dream so far tonight, you know. But you could start seeing the illusory quality, the phantom-like quality, or the... Sometimes people, uh, when they get a taste of it, uh, things look holographic. That's another way it looks. It's like, you know, because something's here. It's, it's like a rainbow. And this is the, the classic um, uh, metaphor in, in Tibetan Buddhism. It's like a rainbow. Like when a rainbow's there, it's there. But we also know it's not there. There's nothing there. That's the metaphor for this. It's a rainbow. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.